So if you joined us as you were walking in this morning, you heard a song, and, and for those of you that weren't, that are at home, then I want to um, call back to some of you that may have listened, been in the Christian subculture for a long while. You, you've probably heard this song. It's been on YouTube seen for like 86 million times. So this is just an excerpt, but it's probably a song you might have heard before. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. One will my heart feel Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine Yeah, I can only imagine So uh, that's the band Mercy Me. I knew those dudes like 25 years ago when I was working at a Baptist camp in Temple, Texas. Those guys, before they were big, they came there and, and, and played at Baptist youth camps. And so that guy looks like uh, Mr. Clean. That's Bart. And the song, again, it's, it, of all the Mercy Me songs, that's probably the one. If, you've heard, if you know who Mercy Me is, and if you listen to any of your music, that's probably the one that you know. And I've heard a hundred times, right? And in terms of the imagery that it evokes of imagining what it will be like, as Paul says, um, when our faith becomes sight and, and we shall see him face to face and, and know him as we are fully known. That's, that's profound imagery that it, it is proper to fill our brains with. That's why we talked about at the beginning of our service, that part of our being transformed by the renewal of your mind is to set our mind on things above. And, and that's what the song so beautifully does. It's so evocative. I don't know what it's going to be like, but what I hear from the New Testament and elsewhere, you know, you could do worse than imagining of standing in his glory and, and dancing or falling at your feet. But here's why I invoke the video. We could have just listened to the song, but if you were watching closely, you noticed that the video, which what you saw there is pretty much the entirety of the video. It's people holding up either empty frames or frames of those of people who they love, but whom they've lost. If you go to a Mercy Me concert now, apparently you bring an empty frame so that they'll play that song. To remember the ones that you've lost, those whom you love. And I bring up that detail only to make this point. The, the imagery of reunion with those we love as a consequence of believing in the resurrection, there is a glory to that. And there is no way you can diminish it. It is something worthy of looking forward to. And yet, that idea, it actually betrays maybe the fullness of what the song is saying. The lyrics are speaking even more broadly and widely 
of a much larger significance to what it means to live before God and believe that Jesus has risen from the dead than even what the video portrays. And without dissing these dudes, I love the song, and, and maybe you love him too. Here's the point I'm making. The re- resurrection, while it involves a reunion, to think of it only in terms of reunion of those you've lost, that in some ways flattens the significance of all the resurrection points to. And, and that's what happens in the video is something that kind of maybe, maybe we do that too. Maybe we think of the resurrection simply and exclusively in those terms. But maybe we shouldn't. Maybe the resurrection is more than an afterlife. In fact, that's what we're talking about today because of what Paul is going to bring up, both in the sermon we'll talk about this week and the sermon we'll talk about next week. Yes, there's plenty to dance about and glory in in the idea of seeing people we love whom we have lost, of of those that, that will lose us. But we have to see that it's in a wider context. We have to see the resurrection and what it points to in a much broader sense. And both this week and next week, we're going to do that. Paul is out to tell us today that the resurrection is more than an afterlife. And we have to reckon with that. It's for our good. Because otherwise, you and I will turn the resurrection into just something that we think about in the presence or on the cusp of death. It actually has implications for today. And we want to tease those out. So we're going to consider three things that are true about the resurrection that speak to the fact that it is more than just an afterlife. Three things. The resurrection points to the idea of a dramatic reversal, a comprehensive renewal, and an abiding reign. A dramatic reversal, a comprehensive renewal, and an abiding reign. It's going to get thick and deep at points Stay with me. I promise I will draw out the implications, the so what question, okay? So if you will, would you stand? We're going to listen to the birthday girl this week read to us from 1 Corinthians 15. Our central text for today is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ had been risen from dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man of came death by a man has also come the resurrection of dead the dead for as in adam's adam all die so in christ shall all be made alive but in each of his own order christ the first fruits when his coming to those who belong in christ then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom for to god and the father after destroying every rule, rule and every authority and power He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is the plan he accepted to who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Good job, Evie. Thank you, Evie. Last week, we thought that Paul was doing us all a favor by um, 
helping us sit down with our inner atheist for a minute and at least imagining what would happen if the resurrection were not true. This week, he is out to, uh, to speak a different tune to us. He is out to help us think through that the resurrection is, is a lot more than just a magic trick on God's part. Poof, he's alive again. It's, it actually has something even more profound that we have to wrestle with. And the first thing I think that Paul was trying to help us understand is that the resurrection points to this. It points to what we might call a dramatic reversal. The undoing of something that has been undone. And it speaks to that there in verses 21 and 22. For by, by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And talking about our, our primordial parent of Adam, he is out to remind us that all of us share in his story, share in him. And that story has a direction. It has a trajectory. And that story leads to death. And that, that trajectory towards death indicates something that is true of us all. Namely, there is an impulse that lives within every single soul. There is an impulse in with everyone who calls themselves a human being. And that impulse is to refuse subjection to the Lord. It is to seek one's own path. It is to find one's own good. It is to be one's own God. It is to refuse to believe that we belong to anyone other than ourselves. That's the impulse that lives within each one of us. And where we follow that impulse, to the extent that we do, we are cut off. We are cut off from the both origin and source of all good, of all life. And that in and of itself makes us vulnerable to death. That's the story we're in. Death originates in a refusal to see God as God. Death originates in a refusal to believe that God is God. And we learn that. And we know that from the earliest of ages, even before we even think about it, even before somebody starts telling us, you know that's part of our story, right? When you were young, if you were fortunate, love came to you. Wisdom was brought to you. Guidance was given you. And some of your first instincts were to give it the stiff arm, to refuse it, to deny it, to turn away from it. And, and though sometimes, again, if you were fortunate, you learned from your error. What you come to discover is that when you follow that impulse, it either delays or denies what you really need in favor of what you only really want. And Paul was trying to show us that that story lives in us. George Herbert, he wrote a poem. He wrote a lot of poems. He wrote a poem called Nature, which goes, one of the lines goes like this. Full of rebellion, I would die or fight or travel or deny that thou hast anything to do with me. It's where we start. And it's a hard habit to break. 
It is the belief that I know best. And when I follow that, we lose. We lose something profound. That's the story of Eden, friends. That's the story of the younger son in Jesus' parable of the two sons. He's convinced he knows his own way, his own good, his own path, and then he discovers, I don't. The story of Eden, the story of the younger son, friends, that's our story. The story of every soul. And what Paul is out to say is that all of us in this room, for those of you who are at home, for those of you who believe in God or who scoff at the idea of it, we share a certain solidarity to that story. And that story is accompanied by death. It is tra- has a trajectory towards death. And Paul is out to say, we all share in that. Now, I know that's deep. But that's where things are. And yet what he's out to tell us when I say a dramatic reversal is that someone else has come along. Another Adam. What Paul will later in 1 Corinthians 15 say, this last Adam or the second Adam. The one who is just like Adam in many ways and yet unlike him in some profound ways. Something has changed. There's been a reversal. The path to death and death alone has been rerouted. You, you, you take an airplane flight and, and you, you step up to the counter or you get on the plane and you, you, you're about to go taxiing away and you're headed, I don't know, to Sacramento, but there's a storm in the way and what do they, the pilot says, we're going to be rerouted to another place. Your trajectory has changed. Your destination has changed. Paul is out to tell us that in Jesus, the last Adam, our path has changed. It's been rerouted. And so there's been a reversal. A reversal of an outcome. Whereas death was our intended trajectory and death alone, now that path has been rerouted to resurrection, a different outcome, a different outcome of destination, but also a different outcome, or rather a reversal of the means by which we shared it. All of us share in solidarity with Adam by blood. And death is ours by virtue of our relationship to that primordial parent. But those who would benefit from the work of resurrection, now we benefit that not by virtue of our blood relationship, but by faith, by faith alone. This is the gospel. This is the truth that everything that is his is yours by faith in him. His work, the second Adam, the one who died and was raised, that's yours. And that's a reversal. Okay, yeah, that, maybe, that's, maybe that's brilliant, it's beautiful, and Bart could write a song about that. In fact, he did. But so what? What does that have to do with now? Is it just something that I, that I have to conjure up when I go to a hospital bed or when I'm on that bed? No. You think about this long enough, you think about the story that we share in with Adam and therefore the story that we share in with Jesus by faith in him. Here's, here's how it applies. If what is his is ours by faith, then that gives us a reason for all sorts of things that are good for us. That is a reason for thanksgiving, patently. It's also a reason for courage in all the things that we might face. To know that this is true for us, that's courage. But, but I would suggest to you that maybe the most important thing it offers us is this. It offers us the most profound reason for humility. And I have to say that 
in this because it feels like it's maybe far afield from where Paul is going in the passage, but I think it really applies in this way. Friends, in the last 14 months, you and I have been tempted to something that's anything but humble. Because that which we, we disagree about, which we differ with, which we have all sorts of disagreements over, that, that's natural. That's inevitable. And that's okay. And in the midst of that context, you can, you can differ with people. You can disagree with people. You can even debunk their claims. But here's the thing. The bridge that we go to in the midst of those experiences, we start to hold other people with contempt. We start to think of them as from some other planet beneath us, inferior to us, of that benighted, silly, foolish set of people. You and I are tempted to think that way. Friends, that idea has no place in the heart of anybody that believes that they share a story in Adam. We are all kin to each other. No matter how much we disagree with one another, no matter how much wrong the other person is, we all share in the story of that primordial parent. You and I have no place to think of them as if they're from some other planet. And at the same time, we are humbled by the fact that we all share in that story, that we all are headed toward death. The other reason for humility is this. You and I have no place to think of somebody inferior to us if this is true. That if every benefit that we have from Jesus comes to us not by our associations and not by our moral perfections, if what we have from him if the trajectory that has been rerouted toward resurrection and away from death comes to us simply by faith in what he did, then who am I to think of anybody who I might have the most profound disagreements with? Who am I to think of them as they are subhuman? I don't, and neither do you. That dramatic reversal is speaking, of course, to things that are full in their fullness in time. But if you think it doesn't apply now, Oh, it does. See, you and I are so naturally given to self-righteousness. We are automatically primed to be condescending and full of condemnation. But this dramatic reversal short-circuits that impulse. So yeah, resurrection is a lot more than an afterlife. It applies now. And that's just the first point. Oh dear. Where's he going now? Look, the resurrection... It is a dramatic reversal. But that dramatic reversal, Paul was about to say in the, here in the second thing, it, it's just a prelude. It's just a pledge. What do I get by that? Two times you heard the word first fruits used to refer to Jesus. That's a rich Hebrew Bible word. Uh, the first fruits could refer to your firstborn child. Your, your first fruits could be to the offering of food that you would bring to the temple, and when we're talking about first fruits, we're talking about the cream of the crop, the first stuff that sprouts and blossoms. It would be your best stuff, not the dregs, not the leftovers, the good stuff, the stuff that you would love to eat right now. You know, bring out that succotash. Let's do it now. No, I'm going to offer it to the Lord out of thanksgiving to him. We, we put our seeds and our plants in the garden yesterday. We're looking forward to when they grow, and when they first grow, when the first thing shoots and the first tomato starts to ripen, you know what we'll do? We'll give thanks for that. Why? Because that first tomato 
will be an indication of a fuller harvest still to come. What Paul is out to tell us here by speaking of Jesus Christ as the firstfruits is that his resurrection is a pledge. It's a promise of more. He is the first fruit of which is an anticipation of an even greater resurrection shared by more than just him. In other words, Paul is out to say to us, there's more where that came from. And Jesus is just the demonstration of something more to come. But there's a sequence to it. And you heard that said there in verses 23 and 24. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end. The end. What is that? It's, it's actually two things that are one thing. And that one thing is the comprehensive renewal of all things. That there is a dramatic reversal that we see in Jesus, but that dramatic reversal that we see in Jesus of which he is the first fruits, that is a, is a signpost. It is a, it is a marker of a more comprehensive renewal that will come upon all things. And that comprehensive renewal involves two things, the first of which is as dramatic as the dramatic reversal because he speaks of it in terms of destruction. That something will be destroyed, namely every rule, every authority, every power will be destroyed. And if you press into the original language there, it means to make it inoperative, to shut it down. To pull out the spark plugs, it can go no further. This comprehensive renewal of all things will end, will culminate in a destruction of everything that is opposed to him. And that's, that's cosmic. It will mean the end of every rule and every authority and every power that is arrayed against him. And it also means the last enemy will also be destroyed. And that last enemy is death. The video is not wrong for showing us imagery of people who we lost. Death will be in an end. But there's more. Let's, let, me, let, me, let me pull up a couple pieces out of literature to help us feel that. In the Deathly Hallows, Harry Potter and Hermione are walking through the cemetery at Godric's Hollow. He's out to find the grave of his parents who died on the same night. And he finds the grave. And there, the inscription upon their tomb for James and Lily Potter, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And apparently, Harry never went to catechism class because he didn't have a clue what that means. He'd never heard it before. And as she is wont to do, Hermione comes to the rescue because she knows all things. And there in that moment, she says to him, it means, you know, living beyond death, living after death. And while that illuminates Harry as to its meaning, if anything, it makes him more angry because he knows that his parents are just lying there in the, in the grave and he wishes he were there with them. The comprehensive renewal of all things means to put a full and final end to this thing called death. But that is actually, even though it's the last enemy, it is part and parcel of a much larger destruction, a much larger renewal of everything that is opposed to him. 
that whatever is good and loving and just, that we might see in glimpses here now, that which is squelched and strained and impaired, that will come to an end. Every pattern, every purpose, every structure that is opposed will be made inoperative. Somehow in all of that, anything, injustice, greed, deceit, malice, whatever it might be, it will be brought to nothing. How can I make you feel that? How can I, how can I help you grapple with that? And at the end of the return of the king, when Gollum has perished in the fires of Mount Doom, and with him the ring of power that has held all of Middle-earth in slavery to fear and suspicion and animus, when that happens, Tolkien describes, in the only way that Tolkien can, the brilliance of what happens when all things fall apart that were arrayed against all that was good. Just, just listen to it. I have a slide. Just, just here. If you want to close your eyes, you can do that too. Listen. Towers fell. Mountains slid. Walls crumbled and melted, crashing down. Vast spires of smoke and spouting steams went billowing up, up until they toppled like an overwhelming wave and its wild crest curled and came foaming down upon the land. And as the captains gazed south to the land of Mordor, it seemed to them that that black against the pall of a cloud, there rose a huge shape of shadow, impenetrable, lightning crowned, filling all the sky, enormous. It reared above the world and stretched out toward them a vast, threatening hand, terrible, but impotent. For even as it leaned over them, a great wind took it, and it was all blown away and passed, and then a hush fell. The conquering of all that had held them in fear, that had turned brother against brother and nation against nation, all of that had been destroyed. All of that had been made operative. Friends, what Jesus is speaking of here, or rather what Paul is speaking of here, is that the resurrection that is wrought in Jesus, it will culminate in the end of all malice. And therefore, it is much more than an afterlife, as glorious as that may be. It sets off a chain reaction whose final work is still at a distance. And, and you may then wonder, so like, as, as beautiful and as evocative as that may sound, so what? Uh, it's wonderful, but, but so what? This comprehensive renewal, friends, it's supposed to be encouraging, but I think it also might be immensely clarifying for us. Clarifying as to what is our point and purpose in this world. If God, who is both loving and just, means to bring both of those into fullness in time, then doesn't what's loving and just make sense for something that we pursue now? Why do we have to wait until its fullness arrives before we are engaged in that work in the present? If kids, you're listening at home, any kids that might be here, look, your life is in front of you, and there's all sorts of things that you're thinking about, what you do with it, what am I going to do, where am I going to live, how will I enjoy it, and all of those things are important things. But if I might plant a seed in your mind about how this idea of comprehensive renewal fits into your thinking now, don't just think about how you're going to live in it. 
Don't just think about what kind of job you're going to have in it. Don't just think about how you can enjoy it. How will you love this world? How will you see to love and justice being at work in this world now? The comprehensive renewal still to come is not something we sort of sit widely by and wait for entirely. It is something that happens in large and small ways, in large and small acts, in seen and unseen ways. That's immensely clarifying for what we're to do here. And so it might seem rather odd to invoke this kind of quote, but there's a, a theologian I've shared with you before. His name is David Bentley Hart. And he says this, Our faith is in a God who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin, the emptiness and waste of death, the forces that shatter living souls. And so we are permitted to hate those things with a perfect hatred. How do you hate those things that kill? How do you hate those things that mean only malice? You call them out. You challenge them. You disrupt them. You get in the way of them. There's a name I, I became aware of this week that I'll share more of his story next week, but his name was Carlos Rene Padilla. He died last month. But he said this, Jesus Christ came not just to save my soul, but to form a new society. If you think God's intention for you ends with you, you're wrong. It has a wider import. It has a more comprehensive renewal in mind. That's what the resurrection's pointing us to. And as soon as you hear that, as soon as I hear that, I go, yeah, oof, uh, that sounds kind of tiring. And the older you get, uh, no matter how much good you might want to do or, or ex express love or 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 seek justice or whatever you might be, you, you, know, you and I know very well, um, you're met with obstacles. Um, and if you give it long enough, you'll probably become cynical if you're not careful. So what helps us, even if we might want to participate in that larger project of renewal, what will help us when it seems like it's just a waste of time? That's the last thing that Paul's got for us here. Yes, it is a dramatic reversal which is a pledge of a comprehensive renewal, but that comprehensive renewal is all headed towards something. And the most convoluted part of the passage is when we talk about the word subjection that shows up six times in the last two verses. It says, God the Father put everything in subjection under Jesus' feet. And Jesus, once all of his enemies are subjected to him, it says, Jesus will then subject himself to his Father. And it's like, oh gosh, uh, who's on first? I don't know, third base. Something's at work there. And, and usually when you and I use the word subjection or subject, it's usually in a derogatory negative way because usually when we think about somebody being um, over us and we're in subjection to them, it's because we don't think that they're worthy of being subject to him. But just listen to the story of Jesus. The kind of compassion that he had, the kind of courage that he demonstrated, the kind of welcome that he demonstrated, the kind of love that he went to, the kind of lengths that he went to to make us his own. I would submit myself to that. Being in subjection to him is nothing more than loving obedience to what he's told me. But where this passage culminates is saying that Jesus will in some ways hand over the keys of all that he has unto his Father. Why? For what it says there in the last verse, so that God may be all in all. So that God may be properly seen and adored. So that he might be known and worshipped as he is worthy of such, 
And you might hear that, especially if you have no category for God, and you might think, man, that dude's got a head trip. He, he needs to be worshipped. I know a lot of people that feel like they need to be worshipped, and there's nobody I would want to worship. What is God up to by contributing to a path and a story that leads to the point at which everybody sees him as all in all? I'll tell you, his reign is not for himself alone. His reign is our rest. It is meant to provide for us a way of thinking and of experiencing later what we might now experience in part now. In 1 Kings 5, the king of Tyre, he comes to visit Solomon, the heir to the throne of David. And there in 1 Kings 5, when asked, what is it that you believe? He says this, you know that David, my father, would not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Here's the one who is a king who is now enjoying a pox Israel. There is rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Friends, that's the definition of rest. When you have neither adversary nor misfortune, within or without. The thing about Solomon, that peace, that rest on every side, it lasted for a moment. And he soon forgot his God and that rest was taken from him. But the Lord Jesus, he never forgot. He never gave up. And the rest that he's come to give will be everlasting. That rest which we should expect in time, is meant to help us rest now. That even in the midst of our disappointments and our disagreements and our exasperations and our depression and all of those things that beset us and plague us, if we will fill our minds with what the resurrection really points to, that there is a kind of rest that is available to us now with the help of His Spirit. But we have to have be transformed by the renewal of our mind. I'll end this way. C.S. Lewis, in that famous sermon he gave called The Weight of Glory, he said this, Jesus Christ, rather at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Beloved, the resurrection does entail an afterlife and there will be a reunion like no other, but it is more than that. And it is more, therefore, that it gives us humility in how we see ourselves and others. It gives us a compulsion to live for a different world than just our own thriving and flourishing. And it offers us the promise of a rest that spills back even to our moment now. Yes, the resurrection is far more than a metaphor. It's far more than an afterlife. And I would do best to think on it more often than I do because it has implications for everything that I do. Let's pray.
Father, heaven is in the details. How we let these ideas begin to simmer or take hold or, or even change the trajectory of how we live or how we think. Um, we admit our weakness and how our first impulse, Father, will to turn our attention to other things that are far more superficial. And so we would ask you to help us to see how does this make sense now? What is that which is in need of this hope? In need of this humility? In need of this compulsion? But also in need of this assurance of rest? We don't know. We come to you with empty hands. Dig us a new ear to hear and to hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go with this word of benediction. It's good to see your faces. He is before all things, and in him things, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The peace of the Lord be with you. Also with you. You're dismissed.